Welcome, welcome, welcome back. This is Luke Shermer, the author of the book Align Remotely and the host of this podcast, the Managing Remote Teams podcast. Now, we're on to episode 50, so I decided that this show might be a good moment to take a little bit of a step back across uh, what's been going on this far. The truth is the podcast has very much been a labor of love. Originally, it was just a supporting mechanism for researching the book, Aligned Remotely, as I was writing it. And I was trying to get additional context to my own experience as a remote manager. A lot's evolved since the year and change ago when this pandemic started. And I think the way people feel about remote work is also quite different now than it was, say, in February or March of last year. So ironically, at that time, I just finished a long-term engagement in March of 2020, thinking I wanted to write a book, and it just kind of went from there. So like for most people, my personal life merged with my work-from-home professional life, already work-from-home, unexpectedly. There wasn't really that big of a change from a work perspective, because I already was working from home, but there was massive change in the home context where that work was happening again, like many people have experienced. So since starting, I've met and interviewed dozens of fabulous people and experts in all kinds of areas touching remote work, and the podcast became its own thing. In and of itself, it started getting a lot of buzz independently of the book, and I've started to get work specifically in this space. Companies have been struggling with remote and what it means. So this episode is basically meant to be a step back over the last 50 episodes for the things that were big eye-openers for me, but also for trends in what I've heard from a variety of people. So it might be useful as a resource even in the future. And I also have some big announcements at the end of the episode. Digging into what I've seen. So I think there's three main areas that I wanted to cover uh, in terms of trends over the last year. So the first one is that there were a number of changes to remote work and working from home and the world of work in general due to the pandemic. And I want to cover what the key ones were. The second area is how the pandemic kind of exposed different problematic assumptions that teams or managers were making when looking at team interaction. Mostly this was because they could just make different kinds of mental shortcuts because they were working in an office. I think a lot of this had to do with the context of the office. Losing that context made it much more obvious that certain interaction patterns weren't effective or arguably even particularly healthy. Remote is just as much, if not more, about managing people and context, not about technology and tools. And finally, I think there was a number of people who were commenting on asynchronous work and that while it is hard, it very much can be worth it. And I think this area is where there is probably going to be a lot more development and growth at many companies. And uh, it's something which hopefully I can help bring a bit of my past experience into also help support that where you work. 
You are listening to the Managing Remote Teams podcast, the show taking a kind, cool-headed, and fair look at remote teams. I'm the host, Luke Shermer, and I've participated in or run distributed teams for almost a decade as a practitioner. I'm speaking with experts on leadership, strategic alignment, and remote work to help you navigate the issues you start facing after you get your working from home gear sorted. So a lot's happened over the last year and change, as I said, and I think most importantly, a lot of assumptions have been challenged around the topic of remote work. And you can hear that right from the very beginning when you have a listen in to my discussion with the Data Truth team who did some quite extensive qualitative research across a number of managers, primarily in the UK, but just in, in lots of industries. And here's what they've been hearing in the early days of the pandemic move to lockdown work. Casting your mind back to April 2020, when we were all thrown into this, everybody was so isolated and everybody's head spinning a bit. We don't really know what's going on. So you make a hypothesis up. We, we fully expected when we started talking to people that there would be a lot of people saying this is really a nightmare our, 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 we're finding it very difficult, whether that's because of technical and practical issues or whether it's because of collaboration difficulties or client relationships and so on and so forth. It was actually at the time quite a surprise to us as we interviewed people that we, are, we were finding actually people aren't saying that. They're saying, you know what? This has actually been pretty straightforward. It's been much easier than we were expecting. It really changes our view on what we think about remote working and the possibility for incorporating more of that into our model going forwards. It feels like as a team, at least at the moment, it feels like we're, we're more productive than we even usually are. So they were really seeing those, those benefits in the, in the short term. And that, that was a, a great surprise to us. Yeah. yeah. Hmm. I mean, we had people, we had people say, we never thought this was possible to move an entire team of, say, for example, 100 to a remote working setup pretty much overnight in some cases. What we've been hoping to do for months and months and even possibly years we've been able to accelerate overnight. It just goes to show that with the right stimulus, there's a lot teams can achieve. So all of a sudden, we had this situation where everybody was still productive, even though they were working from home. And while in IT, maybe this was a little bit more already bedded in previously at certain companies, even there, I think it would be fair to say that People were expected to be in the office because that's how it was assumed that you got work done. And all of a sudden, that turned out not to be the case at all. So that was quite a shock, uh, I think, after people got over the initial shock of literally the whole world suddenly working from home. So speaking for myself, I personally associated working from home with the ability to have a lot more control over how it is exactly that I live my life, for lack of a better term, which I think came back to haunt me somewhat during the pandemic. And I think that's true for a lot of people who were remote working before the pandemic. Um, In particular, I think it meant that, you know, I had a lot more flexibility around how I spent my time, not only at the front and the back of the day, but also in the middle, where I could, in fact, do things that would be quite difficult to do in an office, like go off and cook something that was really healthy, for example, and eat it for lunch. And it turned out that I wasn't the only one that had such thoughts. Here's a clip from 
Robert Bendetti, who is the CFO of Lifecycle Engineering, a roughly 700-person engineering consulting company based out of the U.S. And it, it turns out he had quite a similar approach to mine. It's time to do it while you're remote. And maybe you have a little more flexibility. You could wake up earlier. You could start your work later, or you could finish your work earlier. You could take a break in the middle of the day. Take this as, well. Wow, I have never been more equipped to take care of my health, my nutrition, my exercise, and my mental wellness more now than ever. And I don't know where you are on the awareness or the desire or the knowledge or the action or the reinforcement, but you got to ask yourself. You got to have an interview with yourself and you mm. got to figure that out. It's freaking important. You're going to be a better you if you're taking care of yourself. And for me, it was all around nutrition. I realized, yeah, I can't. I was like, man, I don't want to exercise my way to skinny because what if I stop exercising or I get old and I can't exercise? or I just don't feel like it for a day. I don't want to just get fat just because I was like, I, I'm trying to out exercise a bad diet. So I thought I'm going to really focus on the nutrition side of it. And I'm going to get some good proteins, good carbs. I'm going to get good fats, just go balance diet. Yeah, this is a great example of how remote work actually gave me the opportunity to live according to what was important to me and what my values were more so than working in the office. In my case also, I think remote work was the primary way that I could move away from the main head office in in London of a big company and transition to working from uh, Poland where I grew up and also where my family was. It had certain connotations for me long before the the actual pandemic. Of course, when I confronted that with what was going on around me, it started dawning on me that most people actually meant something quite different when they were talking about remote work. I think the best person who articulated it was Stefan Parios when I was talking with him about the difference between lockdown work and remote work. This is Stefan Palios of the newsletter and podcast Remotely Inclined. I talked with multiple employees uh, who had gone remote. They're my friends, people on Twitter, etc. And they're like, oh my God, I just hate remote work. I want to be collaborating with my coworkers. I want to be able to work from a cafe. I'm tired of being at home. And a lot of instances I had to say, wait a minute, you realize that remote work means you can work from a cafe. Or remote work means you can go into the office if you want to. The, the real fundamental premise of remote work is just that you're not tethered to an office, that it's not an absolute requirement, but a choice. Mm -hmm. And that nuance, I, had to, I found myself having to constantly explain whenever I'd say, oh, I'm a, I advocate for remote work. I think it's a great thing. And people go, oh, I hate it. Like, I hate being stuck at home. And it's, no, you're in lockdown. You are working remotely in lockdown. Yeah, so lockdown, I think, is that key distinction, the key new thing that, that changed in remote work. And come to think of it, right before the pandemic started, I was literally in, in Mexico on a workcation, probably for the first time in my life, trying to take advantage of what remote work has to offer by actually being location independent. It turned out my timing wasn't great, but I still think fundamentally remote work still actually means very different things to me at least than it does I think in the typical narrative going on in the media in the context of the pandemic and I think Stefan absolutely did a great job pointing that out. Next 
main area that I want to point out as a trend in the discussions that I had with various people is that the whole nature of this remote work we're talking about isn't really about tech and technology tools necessarily. I think it's much more about managing people and relationships as they're changed by being forced to be on technology. And I think a lot of white-collar companies, for lack of a better term, office-based companies, uh, were struggling with remote simply because of different management practices or habits that they had or things they could get away with because they worked in an office. And all of a sudden, when everything is remote, all of these things became problematic. And aspects of even, you could go so far as to say their culture, made it more difficult for employees to actually get things done. Here's a great quote that I keep coming back to from Jody Thompson, the author of Why Managing Sucks and How to Fix It. It's amazing what teams come up with when they're presented with the idea that we're not going to measure your time anymore. Hmm. We're not going to measure if you're available. We're not going to measure how busy you are. We're actually going to measure the work. People get really excited about that. <laughs> I can imagine. You know, it's okay. I'm free, but I'm getting paid for actually proving out a measurable result with my own, not only myself, but my team. And this is entirely possible to do. So this distinction of Jody's around focusing on the work is extremely powerful However, it does require a level of awareness and internal consistency. So it raises the bar quite high, actually, I think, for a lot of companies where you need to be clear on the work that needs to be done in the first place, like really clear and not just expect people to be available to burn through hours and plans as they're initially conceived. And in order to be able to get clarity on what that work is, I think the first step really is what the topic of my book was, was this whole idea of alignment. So picking up on that topic, I think alignment is strongly related to decision-making at a higher level and how well that actually all works together. And if you're not sure of how exactly that alignment affects both sides, I think Alan Kelly sums it up brilliantly in the following clip. There's an old Steve Jobs quote saying, as long as we all agree that we're going to San Francisco, everything's okay, whatever route we take. It's when some people think we're going to San Francisco and some people think we're going to San Jose that the problems start. <laughs> <laughs> so, so first of all, you need to get a very clear line on, on where you're going. Hmm. It's that mythical San Francisco where... A lot of companies actually fall flat and then they default to looking at managing workers and how they spend their time. And instead of really, really clarifying at every level that they are going to San Francisco and that everyone agrees that San Francisco is the right place to go. And that's, I think, what is meant by managing the work and not the workers. And if this isn't done, then that really feeds into a lot of other factors that influence kind of day-to-day -day work life in every setting, but even more so in a remote setting. 
So, for example, accountability. If you don't really know where you want the whole company to go and not everyone agrees, then it becomes obvious pretty quickly when everyone's remote. And it's really hard to hold someone accountable in general because they've got too many conflicting priorities, too many conflicting stakeholders, and it really just becomes messy. So I think really digging into what accountability means is actually quite important in a remote context. And the author of Good Authority, Jonathan Raymond, has a few words here about how he sees accountability. And I think it's really useful in a remote context to revisit this particular thing and what that means. Here's the clip. But to me, accountability is about the way we go about things. It's not just about the tasks in your inbox, but it's the way you go about it. Did you communicate in an effective way? Did you collaborate across the team? Did you give people fair warning around changes? Did you acknowledge when you messed something up and you didn't just say, oops, you said, oops, that was on me. And because it was on me, here's how I'm going to fix it to make it easier for you. Nobody does that in our world. That's accountability. Accountability is I screwed up. I made things harder for you. I made your project go slower. I messed something up for you. Saying I'm sorry is worthless. It's better than nothing. But accountability is going is saying, hey, of course, say, hey, sorry about that. And I'm going to take it upon me because I'm the one who took the action that resulted in harm in some way. I'm going to take the next action, which is I'm going to fix it. I'm going to undo. I'm, going to, I'm using the word damage, even though it's a bit extreme. But I'm going to proactively undo the damage or the harm that I did. That's accountability. So that is a really high bar in terms of accountability and almost unrealistically so. And I think even Jonathan would acknowledge that, although I don't want to speak for him. However, if you do have that level of accountability going on in your company, I think you are much better set up for a shift to remote, which may not be completely obvious, but when you think about it, if people really are taking ownership and responsibility of things, then it doesn't really make a difference if you are in person or not. People can pick up the slack if needed. And then you avoid this sense of accountability being this kind of baseball bat or club, which managers use to discipline the frontline employees who they can't quite seem to motivate to look at it more from the perspective of being an employee. In difficult circumstances like we've had recently, people do need to feel understood and part of something bigger more than ever before. Uh, when we had these highly uncertain times, not having managers say what's going on in the company to individual contributors was definitely a source of additional stress, which didn't really need to be there. And I think this is where a lot of the argument is going in terms of the possibility of people moving on and leaving because they aren't happy with how things happen to be working out. And what I mean by understood, I think, is probably best encapsulated in this idea of shuva, which Patty Beach came up with. Patty Beach, the author of The Art of Alignment. And I really think it's worth reconsidering this or digging deeper into it if you really do want to give people a voice and 
just flat out engage them. Here's a clip. Shuva is an acronym and basically it describes a universal set of needs that everybody has. And so that's the need to be seen, heard, understood, valued, and appreciated. And what I like about the acronym SHUVA is, in a way, it is, describes love or fondness or really care, caring attention. But in the workplace, we can't use the word love anymore. After Me Too, everything got awkward and you don't want it fuzzy there. So SHUVA kind of breaks it down into specific behaviors. And what I'm trying to do uh, is to help people understand that SHUVA is the pathway to alignment. So if I don't see you, if you're not in the room, which happens a lot of times, decisions are made and that person's never even invited into the room, how can we have alignment? If I don't actually hear what you have to say, give you time to voice your opinion, can't reach alignment. If I don't understand what you're saying, let's say you, you said it, you were there, you I heard it, but I didn't get it, can't reach alignment. If I don't value, if I don't allow my judgment to be suspended long enough to incorporate in your point of view, then it's my way or the highway. That's not going to get us anywhere. So I have to actually believe that what you have to offer is going to inform my judgment. And then the last one is appreciating. So when I can send you a little message that thank you, whether we agree or disagree, being grateful for the fact that you brought your time and energy to the room, then the likelihood of alignment is a lot greater. In short, Shuva gives you almost a checklist of things to consider if you're trying to troubleshoot why you don't have a team that's engaging or an individual that's engaging. So while it is a little conceptual, to be fair, I think being able to really figure out if someone does feel put aside or doesn't really feel like they're part of a group, it's perfectly natural they're going to be disengaging. And I think a large part of why there was such mass disengagement, especially in large companies, I think was precisely because this wasn't happening. These basic needs, which don't actually cost anything, but which actually take some effort from the leaders of the company to be available and supportive and human, for lack of a better term. Let's move on to the next piece. So I think the third main area where I think I've taken away quite a lot. To some extent, I already knew this around asynchronous work, or async for short. I started hearing various people come up with very specific examples of this happening, particularly now in this pandemic context. I think the, in a nutshell, async is hard, but it's really, really worth it. It's very easy to get overwhelmed with the details of the various technologies which you're using to try to do it. But at the same time, it doesn't change the fact that it's potentially super valuable because it's tied to scaling effectively. It's tied to getting a lot more done. It requires a good amount of additional insight into what you're trying to achieve. Nonetheless, most companies just don't get it from a business perspective as to why working in an async way, at least partially, actually has a lot of business value. And I think a great example of this is Loomly, where I spoke with Thibault Clement, who's the CEO. Now, Loomly is a 
tool for scheduling social media posts, but because it allows for asynchronous workflow, it actually unleashes quite a lot of additional abilities for their clients, not just from a marketing perspective. And you'd have to go back to the interview to get into the detail, but why don't we listen to this clip in Thibault's words? 90 or 95% of the work that we do at Loomly happens asynchronously in writing outside of meetings. We we have very few meetings, very few calls, and, and the way it works is everything happens in writing. So if you are comfortable with that, if you're comfortable writing a lot, explaining your ideas in a concisory and relevant and, and, and succinct way in writing, then you will be very happy. Defaulting to asynchronous communication, I would say this is probably uh, a best practice. My conclusion from that is that if you switch to remote, maybe trying to force synchronous communication is probably not the best way to go because it may be, it may introduce a lot of fatigue for everyone, a lot of rigidity, and it would be counterproductive because you may be trying to import some processes and practices from in-office workflows into uh, remote collaboration. He gets across how much you can potentially gain from being more asynchronous. If you don't like meetings, then don't organize them. Organize your work in a way where you can, in fact, work as a team in a relatively asynchronous way. And that does include writing, that includes lots of other methods. And in fact, it opens you up to do things that are quite important and not just urgent. And I think part of the problem with meetings is that they're often abused as a tool to manufacture urgency, which kind of defeats the purpose. If you do want to keep everyone doing important things, then you need the awareness of what that is as a group and then figuring out how to consistently execute on that. And that's not possible in every industry or every job function, certainly, but where it is, it's definitely an opportunity to improve things and speed things up. I think another really obvious part of this is using software to automate. And yes, I am arguing that technology isn't that important, but at the same time, if you can get precise enough to define the exact business requirements you need, in fact, it's much better to try and build software to do that kind of a thing if it's possible. And I've certainly argued for this in the past with this idea of process debt, where essentially you've got too much process where it doesn't necessarily need to be, where you could have software which handles a whole bunch of little itsy bitsy tasks in a fully automated way so that it can just be managed at a higher level by humans. And for example, in the very early days of, of my career, when I was a young aspiring developer, I remember working on a, on a bit of code that streamlined a month-end reconciliation procedure for a whole accounting department at a big client. And effectively, I managed to create software which did what took them a week and a half's worth of work consistently, but in the scale of a couple of minutes. And that's the kind of potential leap forward 
you can have if you do start thinking more asynchronously. So it's very much in this metaphor of the centaur, which has come up in the discussion around AI. And I, I think this is true of software as much as AI also, namely that human combined with computer will outperform human only or computer only, at least in the context of chess matches and places where this can be more rigorously tested. That's actually a much more practical and realistic way of looking at it in the first place, where you do have certain things which people are good at, which computers will never, or at least not very quickly, replace. And then there's certain things which computers are good at. It's much better to have them do that rather than have people go try and manually key in the same number into five different systems. It takes a lot of time and it's prone to error and things can break. So yes, this is a bit technical, but at the same time, the point isn't the technology. It's about the ability to work asynchronously and streamline as much as you possibly can. And looking at the business benefits of that, of getting that operating leverage, for lack of a better term. So basically, the technology isn't the point. There are actual business benefits to doing this. And I think the most extreme case, or at least the biggest success story in terms of this, is probably Amazon itself. Here's a clip by big technology author Alex Kantrowitz about how this works at Amazon. So I think the way that Amazon looks at business is very simple. It splits it into two categories. Uh, one, category of, one category of work is... What, what part of this work is uh, being used to support existing products or flagship businesses? And then the second category is what part of this work is being used to be inventive, generate new ideas? And Bezos is obsessed with making sure that they can use technology uh, and use any shortcut they possibly can to minimize that work that's just about supporting existing products so that its employees can use more time to create new things. And so he looks for any way to become more efficient, more collaborative inside a company that he can, because this is why I call the book Always Day One. It is always a state of reinvention. A company on its first day doesn't have to spend 90% of its time maintaining its flagship product. It can build what's right for the company and for the market at that time. And so with Amazon, it's a big ass company right now. It's like 1.2 million people. And you have to have a unrelenting focus on operations in a way that Bezos does in order to not get clunky and bureaucratic and fall apart because certainly history would point that's the direction you're going once you get that big. So Amazon, at least the software tech side of it, is pretty much a company that was designed for remote or for async because if they're constantly looking to improve the way their processes work and to try and streamline how their systems work all of the time in a way that's generic, that's interoperable, you know, all these other engineering buzzwords you want to use effectively. You've got a company that is able to separate the streamlining from the actual thinking. In their case, the thing that they're going for here is the ability to innovate and having that always day one mentality. And that's their core value. I think that doesn't necessarily need to be true in, in your particular case. I think the key is that, like Amazon, you can use technology, whether it's 
software you buy or you build or something else, taking some other kind of an approach to streamline the main business to then free up a lot of extra resources to go after whatever else it is that you want to do as a company. It's a great example of thinking in an asynchronous way, because if you've got it streamlined, you can have multiple things happening in parallel, having them work consistently. It's just software that's run, either either kicked off by people or even automatically. At that point, that's all stuff that can be defined and made to work in a way that actually is helpful for the company. And I think that's the key distinction around getting async right, because a lot of these things are asynchronous. Yes, it takes a good amount of investment up front to figure out how to put this kind of a thing together or write the software or components or whatever to, to get it to work that way. And that's a lot of money and a lot of time. And certainly for a very big company, that's even more so, which doesn't change the fact that this becomes a form of operating leverage where you have a good amount of investment up front, but then you get this ability to scale that is significant, similar to that drop from a week and a half down to three minutes. It, all of a sudden, this whole department had, a, had an extra week and a half of you know, full-time employee freed up every month. In fact, it was three people every month which could all of a sudden do something else because of the fact that they made their work more asynchronous and they were more deliberate about it. I'm putting in a little bit of my own approach into my commentary here around the things that I've learned on top of what I've already done in the past. And if it is something which you think is helpful or interesting, I'd highly recommend you check out Align Remotely my book and the details are at alignremotely.com and the book is available on Amazon. And moreover, if you'd like to work with me, then definitely reach out, give me a ring, drop me a line, and we could look at doing a audit of your current setup to see if there's some way in which we can make your company more asynchronous and more effective. And in a remote or in a hybrid environment, because if you architect it this way at that point, you're completely remote agnostic. It doesn't make a difference what you are. It, the team can decide to execute however it is that they want. So speaking of the book, uh, I think it's now probably a good time to segue into the announcements section, which I talked about at the beginning of the episode. So I want to do a new version of the book, a second edition. In order to do that, I am actually deciding to treat this as a closing off of season one of the Managing Remote Teams podcast. So what this means is I will be taking a break from the current release schedule of weekly and I'd like to come back with season two in October at this point, it looks like. One key difference is that season two will have live shows. And I think there's going to be a mix of live and pre-recorded. I'm not sure exactly 
what that mix will be, but certainly there will be more live shows. So if you'd like to know when we're coming back or if we have specific discussions lined up and you'd want to participate in those discussions as part of the live studio audience, probably the best thing to do is to make sure you're subscribed to updates. The easiest way to do it is to take our new quiz, which is at quiz.managingremoteteams.co or just grab a copy of Delegate Remotely from the homepage on managingremoteteams.co and you'll definitely hear about any live recordings of the show and you can participate. And then, of course, the audio will be going out on the feed after the recording. So there's going to be an interactive component to the Managing Remote Teams podcast later on this year. Thank you for listening. I've certainly had a blast doing this podcast so far, and I do want to come back to continue in a slightly new format where I'm trying new things. And if you have enjoyed season one, I'd highly appreciate any reviews you can leave for the podcast at ratethispodcast.com slash managing remote teams. That'll give you the easiest way to do that. In the meantime, see you at the start of season two, literally as in on video. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Managing Remote Teams podcast. If you enjoyed the show, please leave a review wherever it is that you listen to your podcasts and reach out to us on Twitter or LinkedIn with any feedback or thoughts that you have for a future show. 